Hey there, history fans. Melissa here. I just want to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is one of our older episodes. So the way that we sound here is a bit different from what we sound like today. Over time, we've been able to change our format a bit. We've acquired new editing software as well as new mics. So if the sound quality here isn't to your liking, please feel free to check out any of our newer episodes from Elmer McCurdy or anything from about March 18th up to today. I promise they sound a lot better. Otherwise, please enjoy the episode. We hope you learned something new and we hope to have you back for more episodes as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Hey there, history fans. And welcome to another episode of the History Explains It All podcast. With your host, Lauren. And Melissa. On today's episode, we are covering the topic of Qing Shi. Terror of the South China Seas. (laughs) A little shopkeeping up front. If you have enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to leave us a review. Uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, usually there's a place for review. A five star, a little note, a little something would be nice. Appreciate it. And if you want to, you can also contact us through our email if you want to contact us directly. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. We want to also improve or change things around it to, according to what you guys also like. It's not just also about us. It's about you guys, what you want to hear too. So you can reach us at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. You can also research on our Facebook page as well as our Instagram. It's going to be at History Explains It All underscore podcast. Yes, and on our Instagram, wow, hmm, uh, on our Instagram page, we have started to do polls to uh, put up two two topics, and you guys vote on which one you want to hear on an episode. So one is actually going on right now. The poll closes tonight at midnight. Tonight as in the day, not the day we record, which is a couple days early, but the day that the, po- the this episode goes up. So that it'll close on February 3rd in midnight. Or is this the day before it goes up? Whatever. Either way, it closes on February 3rd, Wednesday. And the choices for the vote will be? The choices for the vote are, it's open right now, the Voynich Manuscript or Troy. So if if this goes out, do we put this up Wednesday or Thursday? <laughs> <laughs> it goes out Thursday morning. It goes out Thursday morning. Oh wow, I'm off. If you decide to vote Thursday, I'll make I'll push it to Thursday. So if you guys hear this and want to vote, I'll still count your votes by Thursday evening. So go ahead, go vote. If you can't tap a button, put it in the comments. I want to know what you want to what you want to hear about. People, come on, join us. I have a feeling once if we do if we do Troy and they do want us to do Troy, I have a feeling that's going to end up probably being a two-parter because there's not only the mythology of Troy, but there's the archaeology of Troy. <laughs> there's so much to cover. There, there is. But aside from that, before we get into our main topic, we have weird history. 
it's back. Did you miss it? I missed it. <laughs> All right, you ready for this one? This one's rather interesting. I'm never ready. Too bad. Oh, darn. So okay. this one I never heard of. I was uh -huh. doing some more research for her, my never-ending weird history topics, and I could not help but do this one. It was so out there. Mm -hmm. So this is about the invention of the first ever diving suit. Okay. Would, would you Tell care to take more. a guess as to when? 1800s. Nope. Uh, earlier? Yeah. 1600s. No. No, not quite. Oh, so it was the 1700s. <laughs> I like how I went from 1800 to 1600. Now you're like, one's too late and the other's too far back. <laughs> 1715. Wow. Yeah. I, I didn't. It, like, now, now, prior to that, there were obviously various other apparatus that salvagers could use to dive to certain depths. And I'll get to that in a minute. But this is the first airtight breathable underwater diving suit invented in 1715. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Wait till I tell you what it looks like. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm scared. <laughs> oh, oh, we'll have pictures. It's fantastic. I love it. So it was invented in 1715 by a man named John Lethbridge. He was a wool merchant at a Newton, De Newton Abbott in Devon, England. It's I couldn't find any information. A lot of the sources I found said it's unsure as how to how he came about the idea, uh, particularly being a wool merchant. But it is said that he was rather low on money and had a large family to support. And salvage operations were obviously a very big way for people to make money. So he came up with essentially an airtight diving suit, which is essentially putting a man in a six-foot-long airtight barrel with a glass window and a space for your hands to come out of, lying on your stomach on the, in the water trying to salvage anything that came off of the ship. So in other Interesting. words, you look like a giant barrel. So what divers would do prior to that was, was what was called a diving bell. It was essentially a very large, head-sized, inverted bell that you would wear pretty much like a helmet. And you would actually wear it over your head so that essentially there would be a pocket of air inside the bell as you dove underwater, jumped in underwater, essentially. You would escape the bell, essentially. You dive uh, away from it, salvage what you can, put your head back into the pocket of air in the bell, and then go back up and, and continue to do that back and forth. Obviously, it makes for very uncomfortable and awkward diving. Mm -hmm. What was that? That was my cat knocking over a water bottle. Keep going. Lethbridge actually, so once he created this, he tested it out on himself, as obviously most inventors tend to do. And he was actually able, in this suit, which essentially looks like a man-sized barrel with somebody's arms poking out of it, he could go as deep as 12 fathoms, which comes out to roughly 50 feet, and could be underwater for up to 30 minutes at a time. That's that's really good. 30 minutes? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually pretty pretty darn good. Yeah, for the 1700s, 1715 if we're talking specifics here, don't be able to 
breathe underwater in a suit? That's darn good. Well, it's an, well think of it. It's an airtight suit. There's no way for air to be pumped in or out while you're underwater. Yeah, which means you're so breathing you, out the carbon, the, the carbon that you breathe out, and then you're breathing in a little bit of the oxygen, and then at some point you're going to run out if you don't resurface for more. Right. It's like being when you're buried in a coffin or buried underwater kind of a thing. You only have so much air time. But 30 minutes is quite a lot, especially with the pressure of 50 feet underwater. That's pretty good. So eventually he would, uh, he would take this suit and he would show it to people and he would use it. And the East India Company actually decided to hire him out for salvage operations, which is how he became a very wealthy man eventually. So to give you an idea, at one point, there was a wreck of a ship called the Slaughter Hoge, H-O-O-G-E, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Anyway, it sank off the coast of the Medieta Island, and out of 256 sailors, only 33 survived. So this is a pretty violent storm that sank this really big ship. And in its hull, and in its hull it had three tons of silver ingots, which is a lot of silver. And three massive chests of various coins. So this was taking a lot of treasure back and forth. And they hired Lethbridge out to salvage this operation. On just his first attempt alone going down to the wreck, he recovered 349 ingots and over 9,000 coins, which is quite a lot to do in just one 30-minute attempt. By the end of the summer, he was actually able to recover about half the entire treasure that was on board. Holy moly. Yeah. And they paid him quite a lot. I didn't I didn't get around to actually doing the math conversion, but they hired him out, one of my sources said, at 10 pounds sterling a month, including expenses and any bonuses. But at 1750, 10 pounds sterling would have been a lot for anybody, plus expenses and bonuses. So within the next 30 years, he became so wealthy he ended up owning an estate. Now, I looked this up. I don't know where this is in, in England, and I apologize to our listeners. But if anyone does know, please let me know, because I did look this up, and it's kind of interesting. And he owned an estate called Odignol and Kinkerswell. Huh? Never heard of Odignol Estate, or Cottage, I think now it's called, and Kinkerswell, which is, I think, also in Devon. I, or no, it's in Tarkeg. Sorry, but yeah, <laughs> interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, his his apparatus doesn't survive, but we do have his original drawings, and there are replicas of this actual barrel suit, which two of which are on display. One in Newton Abbott, which is his hometown, and the other also is hanging at the Cité de la Mer Museum in Cherbourg, France. Mm -hmm. And to give you an idea. There, from the Woolboro Paris Register, he, the, so John died in 1759, so there was in the local paper a little obituary, I suppose, for him on 11th of December, 1759, saying, Buried Mr. John Lethridge, inventor of a most famous diving engine by which he recovered from the bottom of the sea in different parts of the globe, almost 100,000 pounds for the English and Dutch merchants, which had been lost by shipwreck. Pretty successful life, yeah. Yeah, he went essentially from a, a poor wool merchant with a large family to very well off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Quite a success, I'd say. 
Well, it sounds very similar from a rags to riches story like our main topic of discussion today, doesn't it? Hmm. Hmm. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Segways. <laughs> so before we actually get into the main topic, I do want to talk a little bit about the history of piracy. So the history of piracy is extremely long. It goes back to before the birth of Christ, okay? We're talking about calendar years, before the year zero. So it goes all the way back to the times when places like Anatolia existed and Akhenaten was alive, like, long time ago. And the actually earliest known pirates were the Sea People, which was actually, it turns out, I thought they were the Philistines, but my source, my other source that I found, new source that I found, says that it's a conglomerate of several groups, which includes the Philistines. I believe that was something that we both found out during our well, we knew that Ramsey's the Philistines episode, were correct? the Sea Peoples. I didn't know that the Sea People were made up of more than just the Philistines. But since you bring up Ramses uh-huh. III, uh, actually, after their defeat by Ramses III in 1178 BC, they fall off the map. Just extra little tidbit that there. So the Philistines, the Sea Peoples, the Luca, Luca, which is another group of them, they just fall off the map in 1178 BC. But piracy was still occurring just because the Philistines, or the Sea People, sorry, I keep saying Philistines. The Sea Peoples stopped being existing or having historical written records of them. Doesn't mean piracy did. Piracy also was fueled by the slave trade in this time. And no, I don't mean colonial slave trade. I mean the slave trade in the ancient times when, even though rulers of places like Anatolia and Egypt and Canaan and all these other places, even though they didn't like pirates, they would still hire out pirates for when these pirates would go raiding coastal towns and stuff like that and they would take people from these towns, they hired them to sell them those people to be their slaves. So, Sounds like a very ancient thing to do that's been going on for as long as I think probably civilizations has been going on. So yeah, and the earliest written source that mentions piracy in China or from China, is from the 5th century. So that's AD, which is interesting. And yeah, that's a little bit on the history of piracy, just to give a little bit of background on it. Do you want me to go into who Ching Shi was, or would you like to start that one? Oh, you're welcome to start if you want. It's kind of reminding <laughs> me of my pirate paper that I wrote in college. It's great. It was, it's seriously, I, I don't remember how many pages. It was probably a good 15 pages on the light. What did I title it? Pirates, the myth, the lore, the legends, the romanticism of pirates wow. in modern That's a long literature. Title. It was I feel a fun like your paper. Title took up half a page. It was a fun <laughs> paper. <laughs> Only if it's but twenty well, size eh. font, maybe. Okay, so Ching Shi was originally born in the Guangdong province of China in 1775. I don't have a ton on the history of Ching Shi's origins, but. After a specific point in time, she became a prostitute, and she was in what? Do you say she was in one of those floating brothels? Yep. Uh, so they were called flower boats, and I know at least one of my sources will have a picture of it. We could post a picture on our Instagram. They're kind of pretty for what they are, mm-hmm. but not necessarily for what happened on them. But 
essentially it was a a mobile brothel it would float and 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 go into port from town to town all up in the, the canton area and she was about 13 or so when she was put into prostitution mostly because it was a very common thing to do that at the time especially when you're in very low income poor and destitute families and areas it's just a way of getting more income unfortunately and it was also believed at that time that the floating brothels which were very popular were also a way of enhancing the sexual experience and the pleasure with the rocking of the boat and everything so they were quite popular but eventually apparently she was quite a beauty and as we'll find out she's got a mind to go along with it and (laughs) very very diplomatic and entrepreneurial so not long after apparently as she started working at the brothels she became the talk of the town mostly for her beauty and her poised nature so she's very graceful as well and she actually began attracting very high-ranking officials including courtiers of the royal palace army commanders rich merchants and various other high-ranking okay. wealthy men. Well, if you have to Not be... Not too bad, to be honest. Yeah, if you have to be that in, kind in of that profession, a, that's, that's doing good. Oh, she does so much better, but not yeah, necessarily that, because of, the, we're getting into that. of that profession. Okay. You're jumping ahead. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> because she was so popular, she actually attracted the attention of Zhang Yi, who was the head of the Red Flag Fleet of Pirates, right? Yes. Yeah, it it was a quite a large collection, I guess you could say, of various junk ships and I want to get into that in just a second because the ships are very particular if you're not familiar with what junk ships are, they've been around in particularly in the China Sea for a very 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 long time. But Sheng Yi was the commander of several mm-hmm. at least a good 200 ships or so I think by the time that Ching comes into play and I did have one source say this and I'm not sure if it's actually true mm-hmm. but it's still interesting even if it was that the emperor because technically it was a pirate fleet but that the emperor of China at the time because this is the Qing dynasty was well how would you put it impressed okay. in a certain sense because essentially it was like a, it was like a small navy but it was one of my sources said that the emperor gave Cheng Yi the title of Golden Dragon of the Imperial Staff, which would essentially be like promoting him to the rank of being a prince. And Xing Yi marries Qing, which essentially would make her a quote unquote princess herself. I don't know if don't know if it's true, I but it's still really cool. Source, so interesting. By the way, just a an extra little tidbit, Cheng Shi literally translates into Cheng's widow or Zheng's widow. Yeah, she went once. Once she married Sheng Yi, she kind of there's different. There's a variety of different names that she is known by. There's Cheng Shi, which is Qing's widow, Lady Xing, Xing Jigu, Madam Xing, Sheng Shi, Zheng Xi, and Sheng Yi Xiao. And the last one also means wife of Qing. Which so most of the most of the names that she is known for are the names that she went by yeah. after she married. So she marries Zheng Yi in 1801, I think. Yeah, 1801. And they're... She's about 26 she's, or so. Yeah, 
she's kind of young, but in that time's not really. But there's several stories or accounts of how this happened. I have one that says that his band of pirates raided the brothel of which she worked, and he had her brought to him, and then they were married. That's one. The other one I also had was that he happened to upon the same floating brothel that she happened to be working on because she was very well known in the area. So he was like, I want to seek out this beauty. And it is also said that as soon as he saw her, he was struck by her beauty and proposed to her right there. And she said, no, or technically, yes. In either case, this is agreed upon, at least for a variety of different sources, that regardless of how Mm -hmm. she became his wife, whether she accepted his proposal or it was by force, it wasn't that I'm just going to be your wife. No, I want equal share and 50% of the plunder. I will be your wife in partnership, not just by name. Yes. Which is something something that women did not get the opportunity to do in a lot of different ways back then and even in some places around the world even today. Yeah. It, it's fascinating. So... She became a pirate, and of course, while under, we, like we said, he, Zhengi commanded about 200 ships. Once they gathered together, once Zhengi and Qingxi came together, the fleet just grew and grew and grew. They went to somewhere between 1,700 to eight and 1,800 ships, from 200 to over 1,000. And in just roughly three years. Six years. Yeah, by the time that she ended up taking command... I'm sorry, she ruled for three years. Thank you. I'm jumping ahead. Yeah, by the time time she took command in 1807, after six years, the fleet, which in of itself was partly a coalition with other pirate pirate fleets in the area as well, but it went from roughly 200 ships to 1,800 with about 70,000 pirates. They had essentially their own navy against the Chinese government. And Andy and all British, Portuguese, French, East India Company. Yeah, anyone they considered an enemy. This was a, a, a massive navy, and it was fantastic. Yeah. It, it's huge. And so let me, oh, let me yes. jump into what a junk ship is real quick. Uh, I have just a little bit on that to kind of give you a, an idea. So junk ships are particular ships. The junk ship is not a name from... Uh, the Chinese language, they have their own word for ship, but we know them all as junk ships. So it, it's a type of sailing ship that's kind of mostly used as a cargo ship or a freight ship that has been used along the entire coastline of China, but particularly in the South China Seas since ancient times. It's kind of high stern, so it's got a, the, the walls of it are pretty high. It's not like it's like a Viking ship that has a very shallow uh, hull to it, if you will. Uh, there's a very projecting bow, so the front of it juts out, essentially, and it can have up to five masts, usually between three to five masts, with square sails, which is a little misleading because they're not exactly in the shape of squares, but they're typically made of linen or matting, so they're much like man-of-warship kind of a sails, just no nowhere near as large because, obviously, this hmm. is just for cargo shipping. But they're lightweight, but they're also thick enough to to work with the different elements and all the wind that can come up. They're essentially river ships or coastal ships. So they, they're they fast, they're strong, 
they can navigate really, really well, but they're also cargo ships. So they have a lot of structural integrity in terms of holding a lot of cargo and, and storage. But it's said that the name junk actually comes possibly from a very old Javanese word, jong, is traced back to the ninth century. Uh, it actually entered the Malay and the Chinese languages in and around possibly the 15th century. And has become, or at that time, it was actually the Malay word for ship or freight okay. ship. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And if you go into that area today, you'll actually still see junk ships about. It's, mm -hmm. it's not as common, but they're still around for sure. Yeah, I can see that. Kind of like pirates are still around. <laughs> Just not yeah. the same way. A little yeah. bit different. So Zheng Yi and Qing Shi get married. They expand the fleet exponentially. And then only six years after marriage... Zheng dies. He's gone. Like, kaput. Not sure how. I've, I've had sources that say died during a, a storm. Some say he was murdered. It's a, it's a tropical area with a lot of tsunamis and, and I don't know if it's, I guess, hurricanes and whatnot. There's a lot of weather phenomena in that area, so it wouldn't surprise me if you happen to get caught up in one of those storms and go overboard. Yeah. What, we, what, we, what we didn't mention before that is they, as we said, this fleet ended up be becoming around 1,800 ships. That's 800 large ships and up to 1,000 smaller ships, which, again, it's your own <laughs> navy at that point. And they actually color-coded it. So it, it was, for lack of a better word, I would just call all of it a coalition of pirate ships. And within each one, there were different color coordinations for different other pirates, uh, pirate fleets that joined in with them to form the coalition. The red flag fleet was the commanding fleet, but there were also the black, the white, yes. the blue, yellow, and green. Essentially, not only does Xingxi, <clears throat> and I'm sorry, I'm still jumping ahead, but not only does she become the most successful pirate in history, not just female pirate, but the most successful pirate ever in history, this also becomes the largest pirate fleet ever in history thanks for jumping just kidding so <laughs> it's it becomes huge and well to, to give you to give to you kind of an idea blackbeard if we think about it blackbeard was extremely famous he's very famous to this day and we when we think of it he had how many in his fleet four ships and only 300 pirates at the height yeah. of his reign she of terror had over mind you that was about a hundred that was about a hundred years prior but still, that's the golden age of piracy in the, the early 17 to late 18, early 1700s to the early 1800s mm -hmm. is the golden age of piracy. And let, let's just face it, um, Qing Shi, 17 to 1800 ships, 70,000 to 80,000 men. Guys, that's over five times the size of, yeah. of Blackbeard. It's huge. Just huge. Well, Qing... Yeah. We kind of skipped ahead and forgot to tell you how Qing Shi came into power. So Zheng Yi dies in 1807, and Qing Shi took over with the support of Cheng Tao, who was Zheng Yi's second-in-command and his kind of adoptive son, I guess you could say. No, it wasn't actually an adoptive son. They did adopt him so because uh, Qing and Zheng could not have an heir. So it wasn't an uncommon practice to adopt someone that you feel is loyal to you that you could use as a essentially as an heir it was a, like more like a business transaction of sense um kind of like 
Julius Caesar adopting Octavius, who would then become Augustus, mm-hmm. the second Roman emperor. Technically, it's his grandson, but he adopted mm-hmm. him as his own son as to become the next emperor. So something not necessarily unlike that, where it's really for business transactions or discipleship if you're training somebody, say, for apprenticeship. But what's interesting is, and I believe you came up with this into your, your research, that Cheng Yi and Cheng Pao were lovers, but also Sheng Shi and Cheng Pao were also lovers. Yeah. Uh, well, I had that during Cheng Yi's life, he and Cheng Pao were lovers. And then later on, after Cheng Yi's death, and a few years after, into her piracy, then they become lovers, and then Cheng Pao and her get married. But that comes later. We're skipping ahead here. <laughs> this is too much fun. So, Ching Shi becomes leader of the Red Flag Fleet. Basically, she's commander, she's leader, and she is strict and she is formidable. You do not mess with Ching Shi as the leader of the Red Flag Fleet. Not unless you really wish your head to be chopped no. off, in, in, in a sense of words. Because she, she even created a system basically created their own society and they had laws and taxes included laws are really important there well that's not very uncommon yeah, for pirating laws, anyway I mean, like, the really important point that i was trying to make because the laws yeah we'll, we'll get well, into i know laws. did you have something else to add sorry well i was say the laws themselves are not necessarily unlike say black bart's laws if you're looking for other pirate laws to go with it pirates were very they had very strict rules because they wanted everybody to be alert and aware so that they could all run efficiently, but also they were very dipl- democratic and fair about sharing all the plunder. But what I was going to say is obviously, so her husband, she was sort of, she was sort of the woman behind the man, if you will. So she was <laughs> the, the bureaucrat behind the, creating the coalition, even if her husband was the front man. But obviously after he was gone, there were was sort of other uh, captains from the various other colored fleets wanting to take control of the Red Flag Fleet. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is a pirate coalition. And the Red Flag Fleet is the one in charge of everything. So they're like, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm a man and I should be in charge. And, you know, it's my turn and, and things like that. And so obviously, you know, Cheng Pao was, he was set to be able to take over, but she actually had to quell other captains from the other fleets. And she actually summoned them at one point and said, under the leadership of a man you have all chosen to flee, we shall see how you prove yourselves under the hand of a woman. And the, she actually quelled all these rival fra- uh, mm-hmm. the, the factions. And in public, and this will, this will play right into our fleet rules, in public, she took all of the captains of all the fleets that were trying to coup her and had them executed in public as an example of do not cross me. Because pretty much, and as you'll see in just a second, majority of anything that was mm-hmm. that you did on the ship could potentially be punishable by getting your head yes. cut off. So just to give you an idea of some of the laws, uh, she particularly had laws created pertaining to the people that they captured, uh, particularly focusing in on women. Women who were considered, quote, ugly or you couldn't get a ransom or anything like that from who they did not wish to keep, they were let go. They were unharmed. That was something that was important. Also, if a pirate wanted to take one of the captured women for his wife, this was allowed. However, he had to treat her well, and he had to be faithful. There was no screwing around. 
So if you were unfaithful or you raped a woman, sorry for the language there, but you were punishable by death. You would die probably by her hand. I doubt she would let you go. It doesn't sound like the person that we've researched. She also had laws pertaining to those who deserted. Anyone who deserted was hunted down, no exceptions. And you were hunted down, captured, and your ears would be cut off. Ouch. And other options for the punishment of this included flogging, quartering, or being clapped in irons, basically. And being clapped in irons is the nice version. And that's it. on your first offense. Second offense, beheading. Yeah. <laughs> um, just any, don't do it again. Don't pretty do much. <laughs> if, if you resisted her by, by just disobeying her, you would have your nails, you would have your feet nailed to the ship and were publicly beaten and probably beheaded. Uh, anyone who gave unauthorized orders or refused to follow any orders were executed on the spot. And then she had a very interesting way of distributing any of the plunder that was given. So as we said, they would fight the Portuguese, the French, the English, the Chinese government at one point. We'll get to that. And also would raid a variety of different local towns. So what they ended up doing is they would raid these towns, but also use the towns as information because this fleet was so large no ship could either go in or out of the South China Sea without the fleet knowing about it. If you wanted safe passage, you had to pay a tax. If you wanted to have protection from other raiders, then you pay you pay a a tribute of a fee. sorts, a fee to to the fleet for protection. So it's like mob money essentially. So the rule was if anyone plundered something in order to either gain more tax from them or just to plunder enemy ships. The ship mm-hmm. itself, one that, that skirmish, gets 20% of the bounty. The remaining 80% would be divided by everyone else. But yeah, for the most part, the rules were, you disobey me, you get your head cut off. Basically. Like, <laughs> come on. And, of course, as we've just said, she was so ruthless, and you actually introduced her with her title, the Terror of, of South China, basically. And they raided coastal towns and levied taxes on them. And it was it was an extensive area, too. Of course, as we said, she's basically undefeatable or impossible to defeat. Because, again, the Chinese, the British, and the Portuguese had horrible time trying to, trying to beat her. <laughs> and this is the 1700s. The English... It has a pretty good navy at this point. This is the 1800s. I'm sorry, the 1800s. You have an even better <laughs> English navy. I'm sorry. This is the, the post-Georgian era, post-Admiral Nelson. The English has a fantastic navy. And they still got their tushes whooped. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, at, after, what, was it three years? She, she retired after three years of piracy, I think. <sighs> Well, yes, but there's a little more to it than just, hey, I'm retiring. Well, yeah. Well, she... <laughs> but she, she only reigned for three years. Yes. If that's what you're going at. Yes. Yeah. She only reigned for three years. But yeah. she, the, the Chinese government tried to stop her. She was so... Formidable. For, thank you. Formidable. The Chinese government tried to... They, first of all, they tried to kill her. 
Oh, and that didn't work. They set up <laughs> negotiations. So we'll get into the trying to kill her part for a second. So at one point, they actually sent out a Navy, the Mandarin Navy, to stop them, which is a small portion of the entire Chinese government Navy. And I don't know if they were a new Navy or just a non, a not very well experienced Navy, but they went out and had a skirmish with the, the coalition. I don't know if it's a red flag fleet in particular, but the coalition of pirates. And in just a few hours, the, the fleet de- defeated that portion of the Navy. And she, uh, I mean, she had incredibly strict rules, but she was also incredibly fair as well, too. So she knew that the more people she had, the more loyal followers, the bigger and better that she'll get. So she actually told the Navy men that I will punish you if you come join us. If you don't join us, I'll probably chop your head off. And in doing so, she absorbed the entire portion of the Navy that came out to try to defeat her. Pretty cool pretty badass and did you get did you get any information about the suicide boats no okay so at one point i got i don't know if it's necessarily the whole government or the emperor controlling the government but they sent out what were called suicide boats and these were some some small little boats full of straw and explosives that they set on fire and moved in towards the fleet now that's not necessarily something completely uncommon to do when you're trying to set your enemy's wooden ships on fire but the 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 coalition was able to actually extinguish the flames from these suicide ships repair the ships and then incorporate them into their fleet as well gaining even more ships <laughs> it is actually said that the leader of the expedition the government employee was said to have actually falsified his reports on that skirmish to make himself look better so that he didn't have essentially shame to his name, but he did apparently later commit suicide in shame of his defeat. So, well, guys, when you well, when so the, you can't control the enemy, yeah, I can understand that. So the attempts to kill her failed. So instead, let's negotiate. So negotiations were entered with a man named Zheng Ling. And it started out between Zheng Bailing and Cheng Pao, and negotiations ended up at a standstill, actually, between the two. And Ching Shi decides, well, if you can't fix this, I will. So she enters the negotiations and concludes that Ching Shi says, well, I'll retire and disband the fleet, basically, if we can keep all of our loot. And you will witness the marriage between me and Cheng Pao, and also all of our fleet members will go unpunished. That's what that sounded like to me. Pretty much, yeah. We, uh, all of our pirates have amnesty. You recognize mm-hmm. our... Because what essentially what Ling was trying to do is he wanted the pirates to kneel to him. Probably a little more mm-hmm. metaphoric, but they took it a little literally with that. So they said, okay, if you marry us, Cheng Pao and Cheng Shi, the two of us, will kneel, if you marry us, we will literally kneel in front of you, Ling, as the thanks. But what the contract also included, and this took months of negotiations, but what it also included was amnesty for all of the pirates, no repercussions mm-hmm. whatsoever. They get to keep everything they collected, nothing goes back to the government. And in addition to that, some of the members of the fleet 
ended up became, becoming government officials and members of the army and navy, including Chang Pao, who actually became a captain of the Guangdong Navy. Guangdong Navy? Yeah, the Guangdong Navy. So, you know, they and she and Chang Pao end up marrying and having kids together. Didn't they have like a son and a daughter? Because I only found a son, but I think you said you found that they also had a daughter. They do. Uh, yeah, I did find that they also had a daughter as well, but there's no name given. There's nothing known about her. Well, at a point, Chung Pao dies. In 1822. So they were married that's for 12 years. years. Yeah, and that's 22 years before Cheng Shi's death, because after Cheng Pao dies, she ends up going back to her home, her original home provenance, and opening a gambling house, which is where she ended up staying until she died in 1844. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, she also, and I think they started doing this when she was still pirating. The salt trade was a very lucrative business at that time, and they would raid government ships along the coastal areas. And it's sort of like sugar for the Caribbean during the golden age of piracy. If anyone's familiar with that, sugar itself was worth its weight or more than its weight in gold because it was a very uncommon item to have, similar to the thing with the salt. But even after she retired from piracy, she still had resources within the salt trade. She had at least one very successful gambling den, although, to be honest, as entrepreneurial as she was, she probably had more than one gambling den. And to bring things full circle, she also opened a brothel. Loverly! So she died quietly, comfortably, at the age of 69 in 1844. A very, very wealthy woman. It's a good way to go. Very exciting life, too. That's everything I had. What about you? Yeah, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Well. Oh, I did want to uh, add that majority of the the raids that she would run were between Macau and Canton and that area, which I did map it out. A lot of rivers. So as we're saying, a lot of coastal towns up and down that area. Google Maps told me it was roughly 107 kilometers, which would make it about 66 and a half miles of traveling up and down river. Here's here's another interesting little tidbit. Hmm. Mistress Ching was actually a character in Pirates of the Caribbean hmm. at World's End. Or is oh, it yeah. at World's End? I think it's at World's End. Yeah, at World's End, at that version, there is a character based off of Ching Shi known as Mistress Ching. So if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Correct. Yes, I've forgotten about that because I forgot about the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped watching it after two. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, that one's actually, it has little tidbits of funniness in it. But well, Keith Richards that, is fun. Well, <laughs> well, so that'll do it for this episode of History Explains It All. <laughs> We hope to see you in a couple weeks. As we trek through history to explain explain it it all. Bye. Bye.